This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The scriptures have a great deal to say about wisdom, about what it is, about its importance, how to get it, and what happens to those who do not. But judging from the popular Christian press, both online and in print, one would not know that from the way that many Christians speak about the scriptures and about the Christian life. Wisdom is often a missing topic. It's not on many radar screens. During the last academic year, 2016-2017, the faculty gave a series of chapel messages on what scripture has to say about wisdom, and with the great help of Barb Vinsolkema and a team of transcribers, Dennis Johnson has collected and edited those messages, now published as an e-book, The Treasury of God's Wisdom, Meditations from the Faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. It's free, and it's available as an e-book at wscal.org. E-D-U. Dennis is a prolific author and editor of several other titles, including Walking with Jesus Through His Word, Discovering Christ in All the Scriptures. And it's available from the bookstore, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. In your preface, you begin with this very interesting reference to T.S. Eliot. First thing I thought of is we better tell people who T.S. Eliot is. <laughs> you have a background in literature and you are a reader, but everybody, the listener, not every listener anyway, may be familiar with Eliot. So first of all, who was he and what was his concern and why did you begin with Eliot? Well, T.S. Eliot was an author, a poet in the 20th century, sort of spanned the oceans, uh, America and the U.K., began his adult life as an unbeliever, but came to faith in Christ and wrote much of his poetry, much of his work related to his faith in Christ, was responsible, among other things, for the kind of the rediscovery of the uh, English metaphysical poets, John Donne, George Herbert, and others, and the revival of them. And then in this particular quote, that we put here. It's part of a longer pageant play called The Rock, but sometimes the songs from The Rock have been pulled out, choruses from The Rock. And Eliot said in this quote that begins the little preface here, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Of course, he's writing this. 1934 is when it was published, so it's way, way before the Internet age. But he's already at that point very concerned that we have more and more data, but really not a framework, not a wise and insightful framework in which to interpret data and to use it in good ways, to use it well. And I thought that just captured very much both the problem that we find ourselves swimming in with uh, so much information thrown at us, but then also the faculty's concern to point to God's word and God's wisdom as a way to navigate that and as a way to go more deeply into the truths of Scripture and find ways to live that are consistent with our trust in Christ. In 1934, what was the information technology that Eliot was facing? That's part of what really intrigued me about that reference. He has newspapers. Newspapers, typewriters, printing presses, yes. The wireless, he would have said, the radio That's was right. relatively That's new. Right. There's no television, and um, people might get an occasional telegram, but they're certainly not walking around with electronic devices in their pocket communicating to them in 12 different ways simultaneously. 
So when he was expressing concern, you could get away from everything and everyone relatively easily. Turn off the radio, walk out of your flat or your home, and no one could contact you. If you're not connected with something on a wire, you're not going to get any information in those days. And in our age, it's almost unthinkable. You know, what happens if Jane leaves her cell phone at home and then you try to call her, right? What do you It rings and rings and takes my voicemail message and she'll hear it when she gets home again. <laughs> yeah. But don't you worry a little bit? Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. Why isn't she picking up? Exactly. What's going on? And so 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you might not be in contact with someone for eight or 10 hours and you wouldn't think anything of it. Today, if you're out of contact with somebody for 20 minutes, at least I begin to experience anxiety, right? Why aren't they picking up? Then you begin to imagine all the different things that could be true or not true. Anyway, I just thought it was a very interesting way to begin. It caught my attention. So I hope it will catch the listener's attention as well and uh, that it will provoke the listener to download this free ebook on wisdom from the website at wscal.edu. We're talking with Dennis Johnson about the new book that he has just edited the free ebook, The Treasury of God's Wisdom Meditations from the Faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. So, as we discussed in our series, our Office Hour series on wisdom a while back, a few series back, what is wisdom? Has your mind changed at all since I asked you that question last time? Do I remember what I answered last time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you think? Well, I think of wisdom as Well, I actually like what our colleague Steve Baugh said in the very first meditation, the skill of godly living. As you know, he unpacked that. Readers can read it in the ebook that's now available, that it is not just information, but it's knowledge applied. It's knowledge put to the right use in godly living. And so it does involve skill. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word chokhmah does really refer to artistic skill, such as the designers and the craftsmen who put the tabernacle together according to the plan delivered to Moses on the mountain. It has that idea of knowing how, not just knowing, but knowing how, and not just knowing how how in very pragmatic terms, but knowing how to live in a way that pleases God, in a way that is effective, in a way that takes the long view, and not just immediate outcomes necessarily, but that takes the long view. And that, I think, is another aspect of wisdom, that if everything were what it appeared to be on the surface— We wouldn't need all the wisdom books because we'd see it and know it. But things are not always as they seem. And the end is not always visible from the beginning. And so we really need to have God give us the bigger, wider view of things. The fool looks at things in the very short term and looks at things on the surface. And God teaches his people to look at things wisely, which means hearing him tell us what's really true and hearing him bring into our view, the longer horizon, I guess I would say. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Our time frame really has shrunk. Our culture does not encourage long-term thinking. In some ways, our economy doesn't encourage it. I'm not sure our educational system really encourages it. And I worry, too, that churches don't really encourage long-term thinking. Again, we live in an age of immediate gratification. You know, Barbara, my wife, Mrs. Clark, tells me, you know, to put my phone away while we're walking. And she's exactly right. (laughs) But then she'll ask me a question. The answer to which I know is on my phone. 
and all I have to do is say, hey, Siri, and, you know, I'll get some kind of an answer. So the pressure to think in short-term categories is almost immense, right? Almost overwhelming. Oh, definitely it is. And then the temptation to react on the spur of the moment off the top of the head with Twitters and tweets that very much limit how much one can say, but also can be shot off almost instantaneously without really much deep reflection. And the wisdom literature says, no, wisdom takes a long time. It takes patience. It takes humility. It takes listening. And it takes reflection. It takes pondering. I think of the section in Proverbs where the sage has walked by the field of the sluggard and sees it all overgrown and thorns and thistles and the wall broken down. And then he starts to think about it and he ponders it and he sees the result that just a little sleep, just a little slumber, just a little break from the work, but it overtakes everything. That discipline of thinking deeply kind of putting away distractions so that we can think deeply. That's a key to wisdom. You're right. Our culture does not like that at all, doesn't encourage that. Some of it, I think, is just natural. We're sinful people. We have this proclivity. But some of it, I think, is cultural. When we lived in a rural area, you know, when you're on a plow— you know, as my grandfather was or sitting on a tractor or my great uncle stood behind a mule on a plow, there's not much else to do but think, right? You're alone with your thoughts. In an urban area, think of Times Square with all the flashing signs and the noise and the light and the people and the chaos and the busyness. There's lots of input and distraction and things that sort of lead you away from reflection on long-term things. If you're living in a major urban area, you're probably more worried about whether I can cross the street. I was going <laughs> going to say, deep reflection on the streets of Manhattan would probably be a very dangerous thing. You have to have your head on a swivel, right? Your picture of the plow. I grew up in a suburb of LA, so I didn't have that uninterrupted time. But when you mentioned sitting on a plow and having time to think. The closest thing I came to was one summer when I worked on a little municipal golf course out in the green. But I still had to pay attention because the golfers were not at all inclined <laughs> to be kind to the grounds crew. So so you had to be alert. If somebody said four, you better move. And even if they didn't say four, you just better watch out. So it was pastoral, kind of sure. quiet, but still, yes, interruptions. Scripture spends a good bit of time on wisdom and I wonder if one reason why we struggle as late modern Christians to think about wisdom, to value wisdom, and to get it is because we don't really spend a lot of time meditating on those portions of Scripture that we call the wisdom literature. Can you walk us through what does that phrase mean, the wisdom literature, the wisdom books? Well, usually when we talk about the wisdom books, we're thinking about Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Sometimes Song of Songs is included. It may Maybe fits there better than anywhere else, but it's these three books uh, in particular. And then there are a number of psalms that speak of wisdom. In fact, some of our faculty meditations in the Treasury of Wisdom book actually reflect on psalms and bring in psalms. But they are these three books that are largely, we believe, the fruit of the sages, the advisors, the wise counselors surrounding the kings. 
Solomon, of course, historically, legendarily, I mean, he's the wise king. David is the warrior king and Solomon is the wise king. And the Proverbs are identified with Solomon in particular ways. And then there are collections also in the Proverbs from a later period, from the reign of Hezekiah and so on. Job probably set historically earlier, but apparently written at a later point in history and Ecclesiastes as well, dealing with as we said, practice of living well, understanding what's going on. Job and Ecclesiastes sometimes provide a kind of a balance to Proverbs. Proverbs could be read in a superficial way, not really in its whole context, but could be read as saying, if you're wise, if you work hard, if you have integrity, things are going to go great. And if you're a fool and if you're a jerk and if you're naive and if you're wicked, you're going to be ruined. And then Job and Ecclesiastes come along and say, well, not always that way in this fallen world, not always that way in this world where God is still waiting to impose final judgment. Sometimes the wicked prosper, sometimes the godly suffer. And so there's not the one-to-one correspondence. And Proverbs has that theme in it too. It's just that sometimes an individual maxim or proverb could be taken out of context and given a very simplistic, do good and all is well, do bad and you're ruined reading. And wisdom is more complex than that. It's deeper than that because it recognizes the interplay of common grace. And in a sense, at this point, for the believer as well as the unbeliever, a kind of common curse that we still are part of Adam's fallen race. And so things are hard right now. Things are difficult and confusing. And that's why we need the big picture, ultimately God's eschatological picture of final judgment, to be able to live well and with integrity. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. So however complex late modern life is, and it certainly is, in some ways, nothing has really changed. In other words, people have always struggled to get wisdom. In some ways, always been distracted and there's always been sort of a general pattern of prosperity for those who act wisely and also major exceptions. You can act wisely and do everything the way you're supposed to do it. And a tornado, where I'm from, can still come and hit your house right? right. and devastate your life and turn everything upside down. And so both things are true. Good choice. That happened to Job, right? His kids died, you know, when a wind blew down his house, you know. And Job, as far as we know, up to that point, had done everything more or less right. Right. He was a righteous man. Right. And that's the great crisis of the book of Job is how can bad things happen to 
what looks to everyone like good people. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dennis Johnson about the new free ebook, The Treasury of God's Wisdom, Meditations from the Faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, available from the website at wscal.edu. Why does, do you think, the broader Christian world seem to be so little interested in wisdom? And I'm not reflecting on this title because people are downloading it and it is getting a good reception, I think justifiably so. But if we were to look around, you know, walk into, you know, the average Christian bookstore or look at somebody's shelf, you know, walk into the average Christian home and look at the bookshelf, you're probably not going to find a lot of titles about wisdom. I think that's probably true. I haven't been in the average Christian bookstore for a while, actually. <laughs> that's telling. Is that, that, that's not, yeah, not a criticism. I, you know, so I don't know. But my hunch is that actually there are more books that we might think of that, even though they may not have wisdom in the title, are really an expression of a quest for wisdom. You know, how do I make relationships work? How do I parent my kids? If we have a troubled marriage. How can that work out? Those are wisdom questions. Now, they may not be couched that way in the way the publisher markets the books, but it's that knowing how question. Now, often the books may offer very simplistic solutions, not hard solutions, not deep solutions. Maybe not particularly wise solutions. Maybe not particularly wise solutions. But I do think that in general, that there is a thirst and a quest to understand how we can at least solve our problems, which is not as deep as wisdom goes, as biblical wisdom goes, but it's there. In preparation for this, I was just skimming once more over the text of this fairly brief book and just was struck by the topics that you and our brothers in the series, you know, pulled out of wisdom. So there are issues of suffering, obviously, issues of sex, issues of money, issues of humility, listening rather than being quick to speak. Those are obviously all ongoing issues that probably are touched on, maybe not well, but touched on in many, many publications for popular Christian audiences still. This volume has 10 essays, as you say, begins with Dr. Baugh working out of sort of a broader framework, the skill of godly living, and he goes through and explains those three things, skill and godly and living, what they mean. An essay from John Fesco from Job 4. And again, these all began as chapel meditations, and these are brief devotions on these passages. There's a devotion from Proverbs 1 from Mike Horton. There is a devotion from Josh Van E on Proverbs 5, Proverbs 30 from President Kim. I did a devotion on Job 38, Professor Telfer on Psalm 1, Brian Estelle on Proverbs 2, Zach Keel, our lecturer in English Bible and OPC pastor here, meets on campus from Ecclesiastes 9, and then Bob Godfrey on Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 10. So there's, as you say, a range of passages addressed and a range of topics addressed. And in some ways, isn't that kind of the nature of wisdom? It is sort of all-encompassing, isn't it? It really is. It touches on every issue and every aspect of our life together. You notice there's no devotion from me. I was doing something else on Tuesdays during this time in our morning devotions, but I was just listening to you and the others expound these, and I thought, this is really good stuff. And I know they're all available on audio recording on our website, but I thought if we could put this into a published form and keep kind of the oral nature of it, some of you wanted to tweak it and make it much more correct for publication. I said, no, we want to we hear it. We want to hear it. 
I was fed. And myself, thinking about these topics and having my colleagues, my brothers, lead me to these passages. And we may be going to this at some point, but I was struck by the various routes by which you all led us to Christ, who is the ultimate in wisdom. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, yeah, let's talk about that, because one of the questions in uh, homiletics, that is how to preach, the teaching of preaching and the practice of preaching is, how does one preach the wisdom literature, but also fulfill the pastoral responsibility of leading the congregation to Christ? Sometimes people talk about those two things as if they were sort of opposed to one another. Either you're doing wisdom or you're leading people to Christ, but you're not doing those two things at the same time. I think wisdom literature is harder than some other genres of Old Testament literature for us to see the connection to Christ. Biblical historical narrative is part of that ongoing story that we know ultimately has to find its resolution in the great hero. There's no real hero in the Old Testament other than the Lord when he intervenes. And ultimately, then we're always looking for him to come in person with the incarnation with Christ. Wisdom doesn't feel like it fits into the story. And so we begin to wonder about that. And then wisdom also feels like it's sort of common sense. It isn't common sense. If it were common sense, we wouldn't need to be told it, right? <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have done the book. Yeah, uh, But it can come across sometimes if we just read individual Proverbs, for example, they can come across as kind of tips for living. Here's your motto for the day tips for living. And so that's why I think what I benefited so much from hearing you all and what I'm still sort of trying to figure out because I, you know, I teach preaching and thinking more about how to teach preaching wisdom literature well. What I appreciated was that we did talk about how God's wise counsel guides our values, our decisions, our affections and therefore makes differences in the way we live. But we never stopped there with just now here's the way to do it. It was always pointing us toward that one who is the absolute incarnation of divine wisdom, in whom, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and showing us Christ in his integrity, his fulfillment, and the fact that there is forgiveness for us, there is restoration for us when we have played the fool because of Christ's perfect, wise, righteous obedience as well as his suffering on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. So um, these are great samples of this. Speaking to us, speaking with integrity about how the wisdom literature molds our thinking, our feeling, our desiring, and therefore our acting, and, not but, also, but and, therefore drives us to Christ and to his grace and obviously to dependence on his Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of wisdom and who can make us wise. Isaiah says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Yes. And it's a little bit surprising in that context because it's in the context of the suffering servant. As one meditates on that servant song, one has the impression that there's an integral connection between the suffering that the servant undergoes on behalf of his people and wisdom. And we see that embodied in Christ, don't we? We definitely do. We definitely do. You know, Paul, when he's talking about the cross, I'm not sure if he's thinking of that servant song at that point in particular, but I wouldn't be surprised, at least. I have to explore that a little bit more because he speaks of the cross as what looks to the Greeks like foolishness and to Jewish nationalists who are looking for the overthrow of Rome like weakness 
So foolishness, weakness. But the cross is actually the wisdom and the power of God. It is that way, that event by which God dealt with our deepest captivity and our greatest foolishness by giving over his beloved son in our place. That's the ultimate wisdom that goes down deep and deals with our ultimate problem. Wisdom can be, often is, counterintuitive. We live in an era where things are increasingly being decided, in a sense, we could say, maybe somewhat prejudicially, but not entirely unfairly, as a kind of mobocracy. You know, you can uh, see these Twitter mobs where someone says something or, you know, does something and suddenly there's a wave of outrage and people lose their jobs, for example, by saying something on Twitter that they you know, I'm sure wish they hadn't right away. And we see mobs on campuses and mobs in streets and things. And in a culture where we are increasingly democratized, the group or sometimes the mob can seem to be wise. But the mob shouted for someone other than Jesus, right? And Jesus is the wisdom of God. So wisdom doesn't always look the way everyone else is talking and thinking and behaving. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah, and that's, of course, preeminently true of Jesus himself, the very embodiment of wisdom, and yet the crowd did not want him. And Paul says they don't want the word of the cross, even though it is God's wisdom and God's power. And it's also true of those who carry the message of the cross. If you think about 2 Corinthians, and Paul is subject to all sorts of criticism for his ineffectiveness as an orator, for his being subjected to all these kinds of persecutions. He doesn't demand enough money when he preaches and teaches. So, you know, obviously what he has to offer is worthless because he doesn't present it well and nobody likes him and he's not <laughs> charging enough. So his marketing scheme is an absolute failure. And Paul just goes right to that very point, several times in Second Corinthians, he lists all his weaknesses and all of his sufferings and his internal fears as well as his external threats. And he says, but all of this is to teach me not to trust in myself, but to trust in God who raises the dead. And it's in my weakness that Christ shows his strength to perfection. So in the very ineffectiveness of my ministry, of the ineffectiveness of the ministry of simply speaking the word of the gospel, the fact that the Holy Spirit uses that to bring people to life shows that this whole process is not a matter of human skill and wisdom, but it really is the power of God to bring life to the dead. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.